Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Morning. I'm a bit like Brett. Um, I'm not very good with names either, but I'm good with faces. In fact, just yesterday I saw someone and I went, who are you? And they're like, Dad. <laughs> To be fair, it was very early in the morning and, you know, teenage, you know, anyway. Stop it. And thanks for putting that horrible 80s song in my head for the rest of the day. No, no, thank you. Not looking at anyone. Hey, it's great to be here and um, it really is my privilege. I seem to get this gig quite often, starting series. So I'm happy about that. I like that Um, because it can only get better, right? Yeah, good. Um, it is my privilege to be able to start the series that we're about to launch into, um, and this morning's message is called The Great I Am. And it's actually my prayer, and I'm going to premise the whole about what I'm about to say with this, that it, although what we're about to talk about this morning is, is weighty and heavy, it, it really is my prayer that it wouldn't leave you feeling heavy, that it would actually leave you feeling full of wonder, um, because we're talking about The Great I Am. Um, and that's, that's, um, that's an important thing that we're looking at. Because over the next nine weeks till Christmas, nine weeks till Christmas, um, I know, sorry, um, plenty of time, plenty of time, um, we're going to be doing a series called I Am, the, I Am. And we're going to be looking at the, the seven I Am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of, of John. You'll be familiar with them. Um, in fact, again, it's one of those things where you're probably, we're probably so familiar with them that we don't really pay much attention to them. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And I am the true vine. You've heard those before, right? Great. As we unpack each of these statements over the next several weeks, um, we're going to be asking ourselves a couple of questions. And in particular, firstly, what did Jesus mean when he named himself these things? And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, what implications do these names have for us as followers of Jesus? So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, as we lead our way into Christmas this year. Father, as we come to your word this morning, um, it is my prayer that what we discover about you, whether for the first time or whether we're reminded of it afresh, would not sit heavy in our hearts in a way that is condemning, but would really cause us to see with fresh eyes and to wonder again at just who you are. And we even start by confessing that at times we take lightly who you are. And perhaps even treat you with contempt at times. And we're sorry that we do this. But we're grateful for your forgiveness and your longing to be in relationship with us. You want to be known and you want us to know you. Help us to uh, open our hearts and broaden our minds as we attempt to do that over the next several weeks. In your name we pray. Amen. 
You'll notice if you look carefully that the I am statements, um, they're actually metaphors. Jesus describes himself as something and as we will discover through the series that we're about to do, each of those metaphors has a, a deep and significant meaning which comes right out of the pages of the Old Testament and we're, we're going to explore all of that. But this morning, I want us to focus on the phrase, I am. To do that, I want to take you to one of the other I am statements that can be found in John. There's actually several besides the seven that we're going to look at. It'll be in John chapter 8 and we'll, we'll read it together in just a moment. Jesus has just told his disciples actually not his disciples, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience and he's just finished saying to them um, that if they were really the children of Abraham, that they would have followed Abraham's example and believed God that Jesus was the Messiah. That's a pretty heavy statement to make, isn't it? They weren't happy about it. And he was having this dialogue with them uh, about... Uh, you know, whether they were really people of the truth. Let's have a look at it in, cha in John chapter 8. And we'll, go, we'll start with verse 52. The people said, uh, this is what they said, now we know you are possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets died, but you say anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? That's actually a really important question to stop and think about right now because it's actually one of the main themes of John's Gospel. All through his Gospel, he's asking the question, who is Jesus? And they're asking it right here. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I want glory for myself, it doesn't count. But it is my Father who will glorify me. You say he is our God, but you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. But I do know him and obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, you aren't even 50 years old. Which is kind of ironic because Abraham was like, what, 1,200 years before more? You aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you have seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before, before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. Have you got an imagination like mine when it comes to stories? Can you just picture that scene? He's just said, I am. And they start getting bricks and stones off the ground and they're about to stone him on the spot and he just like, disappears. That's what the text says. He was hidden from them. What a scene that would have been. But what was it about what Jesus said before Abraham was even born, I am, that caused such a violent reaction and immediate response from the crowd? Well, to answer that question, we need to step back and take a look at the bigger picture, the broader context. In the Old Testament, the most common and the most important name for God is a name that our traditional English Bible translations don't even translate. 
let me give you an example. Have a look on the screen at Exodus 20, verse 2. Um, this is just by way of example um, at the beginning there of the passage, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Um, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, uh, the place of your slavery. Can you see there is the word Lord in capitals? Brilliant. We'll talk about that in a moment, all right? And the next example, Exodus 20, verse 7, you must not misuse the name of the Lord, your God. Uh, the Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Um, just throw up that slide that I gave you, Olivia, if you can, um, and we'll have a look at this um, in some detail. Whenever you see the word Lord in your Bibles in capitals, um, you know that this is the name that we're talking about, Okay. Has your translation got that? Some don't, but most do. It'll be in either all capitals or what they call small caps. So capital L and then O-R-D will be in smaller capitals. Do you see it? Yes. You know that this is the name that we're talking about today. In Hebrew, the name is actually made up of four consonants. It's the letters Y-H-W-H. And it's commonly pronounced, because it's actually unpronounceable, it's only consonants, so you can't really say it, but it's pronounced something like Yahweh. And you will have heard that name before, right? Yahweh. It's not really a word that is spoken, but it's like, uh, I was trying to think of an example of it. If I was to take the letters A and B and put them on a number plate, you could actually say that that number plate was AB. And you could call that a word, right? A is spelt A-Y-E and B is B-double-E. Does that kind of make sense to you? You're pronouncing the consonants. And so you come up with a, sound, a word. It sounds like a word, A-B. But really you're saying, anyway, I won't labour on that. That's what this is. The Jews came to regard this particular word, this name for God, with such reverence that they wouldn't even speak it in case they inadvertently used it blasphemingly. So now you can kind of see why they picked up stones, right? Because not only did Jesus didn't just accidentally use the name, he said, I am. Whenever they came to this name in their readings, as they were reading in the synagogues, they would either just leave a pause in the reading, which would be very awkward if you ask me, or they'd substitute the word Adonai, which is a general word which means my Lord. Sometimes they, there was another word that they added, I can't remember what it was called. And our, our English Bible versions have basically followed the same pattern. They translate the proper name Yahweh with the word Lord in all capitals. So every time you see that in your Bible, Lord in all capitals, it's the proper name of God, Yahweh. So for Jesus to, to claim to be the I Am is in fact the highest form of blasphemy that anyone can utter. And it was instant death by stoning. And that's just not some random concept that we think may have happened. It happened. Instant death by stoning. No questions asked. No court. No jury. No, oh, did that slip out accidentally? They erased the life of the one who blasphemed so that they didn't have to even remember it. That's how strongly they felt about the name of God. The importance of the name Yahweh can be seen in the sheer frequency of its use in the Old Testament. It occurs actually, um, if you're a numbers person, some 6,828 times. 
That's more than three times as often as the generic word for God, which is Elohim, which only appears some 2,600 times. And what this shows, I think, is that God wants to be known. Would you agree? He wants to be known, not as a generic deity, not as just a God, but as a specific person. A specific person with a name. And not just any name, a name that carries his unique identity, character, and as we're about to find out, mission. This is a God that wants to be known. But where does the name Yahweh come from? The most important text in all of the Bible, I think, for understanding the meaning of the name Yahweh can be found in Exodus chapter 3. And we're going to go there and study this passage a little bit this morning. Um, Exodus 3, um, we're going to look at verses 13 to 15. And the context here is um, uh, Moses is uh, tending the sheep. He's up on the mountain and he's wandering around and he sees something a little unusual. Can you remember what it is that he sees? It's not like you wouldn't stick in your mind for the rest of your life. A what? A burning bush. Don't see that every day, right? So he sees a burning bush that speaks to him. And this is where we are in the, in the bigger story. And God has been speaking to him and he's just commanded Moses to, that he wants Moses to go to Egypt and bring his people out of captivity. And in, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, uh, Moses protests, as you would to a burning bush. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? Fair question, yeah? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, uh, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Notice that God gives three answers to Moses' question, what shall I tell them your name is? In the first part of verse 14, God says, I am who I am. And in the second part of verse 14, God says, I am has sent me to you. And then in verse 15, God says, Yahweh has sent me to you. This is my eternal name. And there are two thing, interesting things, I think, to notice um, in these verses. The first is that the phrase I am and the name Yahweh both have their origin in the uh, Hebrew word Haya. Apologies if you're a Hebrew speaker. Haya, which literally means to exist or to be. And in biblical Hebrew, the verb, the verb higher conveys not just existence, but manifest existence. I could spend a whole other hour explaining the difference between the two of those. You see, to be is not just an abstract concept, like to be a lectern. It's just a thing, right? There it is, to be a chair, to be a person. It's, it's, it's descriptive, right? But this idea of, of Haya, to exist or to be, is more than just existence of something per se. In the Hebrew, to be does not mean just to exist, but it means to be active, to express oneself as an active being. 
in the name Yahweh, God made himself known as a present God. That's important. A present God, a present being, present with and for his people. That's the action. Is it making sense? How deep is that, right? I am who I am. And perhaps a helpful paraphrase of God's words here at the burning bush would be something like, say to the people of Israel, I am present, has sent, you, has sent me to you. I am present, has sent me to you. And God sent Moses to the people in Egypt with the announcement that he, Yahweh, had heard their cry and come to deliver them from their oppression and their slavery. And the subsequent Exodus events, which, and we know the stories really well, would become an object lesson for all of God's people and all the nations who are watching that God is Yahweh, but not just Yahweh, he is the God who is present with his people. That is really important, especially as we look at the I am statements in the Gospel of John. This is not just a God that's carried around on a platform made of gold, wood, stone or whatever. This is a living being present with his people. That is significant. The second thing we notice when we look at uh, I am, um, at these two, these two names, um, is that I am and Yahweh are interchangeable. And that's actually quite deliberate. I am has sent me to you in verse 14 and Yahweh has sent me to you in verse 15. Indicate that the two are interchangeable, especially in this context. You see, God is revealing himself to mankind. But more than that, by sharing his name with Moses and ultimately with his people, he's actually revealing not just his heart, but his mission. The action that God is about in being present with his people is to save them. And that's what's about to happen in that great story that we know so well. But let's just remind ourselves, have a look now at Exodus chapter 6. I told you there'd be lots of scripture today, which is good, right? Exodus chapter 6, we'll start at verse 2. Um, and I've taken the liberty of, of substituting the name. You'll see what I've done. And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, which is God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name Yahweh to them. And I reaffirmed my covenant with them. And under its terms, I promised to give them the land of Canaan, where they were living as foreigners. You can be sure that I have heard the groans of the people of Israel, who are now slaves to the Egyptians. I am well aware of my covenant with them. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. Just, can you see that there? I am the Lord. Oh, it's not coming up, it's all right. I am the Lord, capital letters, I am Yahweh. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has freed you from oppression in Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own possession. I am Yahweh. Not some generic God carried on a platform made of gold, silver, stone or whatever. 
but a living being present with his people. So let's ask ourselves a question. And it's potentially the biggest question you might ever ask. What does it mean when you ask God, who are you? And he answers, I am who I am. We've all asked that question at some way or another, haven't we? Teenagers ask it often, you know, is God real? How do I know he's real? Um, who is God? How, how can I know he exists? So that type of thing, right? We've all asked that. Nothing wrong with asking that. In fact, it's good to revisit that from time to time, I think. I've done that recently, even in preparation with this. God, who are you? And it seems to, to me that the more you learn about God, the less you know. You realise you know. They're perhaps the most important words in all the Bible. Everything else, this, this idea of I am who I am, everything else gets its meaning and its significance only when you come to terms with the reality of who God is. Now, I'm not sure if I'm honest with you that I'm able to fully do justice to this subject. I'll give it a crack. But let me share with you several implications that the divine name, I am who I am, um, has on our understanding of who God is. I'm not going to give you any application here. There's some implied implication. I'm just going to let the, the words in the text speak for themselves and I want you to think deeply, reflect, go and meditate on this if you want to or need to. I certainly do. The truth behind these implications... The first, and there are more than just these. These are just the ones that stood out to me. The first implication in the name I am who I am is that it actually implies that God exists. You might think, duh, as my kids would say, duh. And at first it may seem so obvious and so basic that we wouldn't even need to mention it. But the reality is, and I'm got, everything I say from now on includes me, right? The reality is, is that most people live their lives as if it weren't true. A lot of the time. Or if it were a truth that makes no real difference in their life. So many people in this world are living their lives as if God wasn't really there. And that's not just outside the church. And there are many even who call themselves Christian yet continue to live their lives as if God had no power or authority. They don't seek his wisdom. There is no genuine adoration towards him. And at best, they treat him as if he was there for their benefit. We're all guilty of that at times. So we're not pointing fingers here. And yet contained within the name Yahweh is the first and most important truth about God. He exists. Have you ever stopped to consider the reality of a God who exists? Like really contemplated it? It should take you about the rest of your life. In all honesty. There is no greater question in the human experience, I don't think, that you can ask than this. And yet, contained within the name is this truth that he exists. 
The second implication, and you can sit on that for the rest of your life, but I'm going to add a few more for you, okay? Good. I knew you were up for it. A second implication of the name I am who I am is that God's personality and his character are owing solely only to himself and no other. Just think about that for a moment. God's personality and character are owing solely to himself and no other. In other words, he is self-determining. That might make us feel a little uncomfortable, but that's the truth of it. Now, to be fair, you would need to read a lot of other scripture to find that truth, and it's there, and we don't have time at all to even... That would be a whole other nine-week study in and of itself. That The self-determining nature of God is there, and you perhaps legitimately couldn't say that you can derive that truth just from this passage, although this passage contains that truth, if that makes sense. Okay, so that's kind of where we're going. There's a whole heap of other scripture that kind of pours into this. If you asked me how I became who I am, I could tell you that my father and my mother gave me a set of genes and that they raised me a certain way and that I've been surrounded and influenced by thousands of different influences in my environment. And you would agree that that's right, yes? We are a product of our environment in many ways. Um, And that's how I got to be who I am today. Or I might even pull out Psalm 139 if I was really spiritual. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. That's also true, right? Great. But when we ask God how he got to be who he is, he answers, I am who I am. In other words, what he is saying is this. Nobody and no power brought me into existence or shaped my personality. I had no beginning. There is no reality outside myself that does not come from me. There is no force or influence upon my character and no power except that which comes from me and is controlled by me. I am utterly absolute. That, my friend, is a very unpopular concept today. I am utterly absolute. There is no other God but me. Unquote. That's actually a mishmash of many Bible passages just in that quote. (laughs) There is no other God but me. He is utterly absolute. And contrary to what our society might tell us, that's an absolute truth. And whether you believe it to be true or not, actually doesn't matter, as far as God's concerned. It actually doesn't matter whether you believe it to be true or not. Because absolute, that's the absolute reality of who he is. He cares that you want to know, but it actually doesn't matter in one sense because he is who he is. That's mind-bending. We've got two. We've got a few more to go yet. I know you're up for it. One day, and this is what I was talking about when I said this has the potential to be heavy, but I want it to cause wonder. One day... The reality is that we will stand face to face with this absolute reality and realise that he simply is who he is and that, my friends, should be a very sobering thought. 
I wish I could allow you at least 45 minutes between each of these points just to contemplate them <laughs> and we'd be done by dinner tonight. Another implication of the name I am who I am is that God does not change. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, God says, I am the Lord, all in capitals. I am Yahweh, I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. That's comforting, isn't it? And you and I both know, as, as, as well as anyone, that people change their mind all the time. They change their mind because of unforeseen circumstances, uh, because of things that are out of their control. Sometimes they change their mind just because they feel like it, they have a weak resolution, whatever it is. People change their mind all the time, but not God. He foresees all circumstances and has no weaknesses. Nothing in all creation catches him off guard. And he never finds himself backed into a corner where he might have to act out of character or compromise his integrity. We've all fallen into that, haven't we? If we're honest with ourselves. We find ourselves backed into a corner, we're caught off guard, and the only way out, we think, is to compromise our integrity and our character. God never does that, ever. And it'd be easy for me to stand here and say, because he can't, because he's God. And I think that's boxing God a little too much. He doesn't. And he never will. He is who he is. And therefore, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And forever, for that matter. God's very name is the firm foundation of our confidence in his ongoing faithfulness. The context of Malachi, of course, is that God's promise to his people is that he will not turn away from them if they turn toward him. That's part of the covenant that he made with them. And it is actually a call to repentance. It's a promise to all who would call on his name. It's a promise that still stands. Because God is present now. Although he's the God of yesterday and the God of forever... I am who I am is the God of now. That's what it means. I am present now. I am coming to save my people now, as I have done in the past and as I will continue to do in the future, but salvation is for today. Another implication of the name, I am who I am, is that God is an inexhaustible source of life. Isaiah 40, 28 tells us, have you never heard? Have you never understood? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary and no one can measure the depths of his understanding. You see, not only did God create the universe in which we live, he alone is the source of all power and energy that keeps it going. I want to read a little excerpt, excerpt whatever, a little passage um, out of this book. Uh, actually, one of Phil Baker's books, one of his study series um, called Yahweh. It's, it's brilliant. I don't know if you can still get it or not. Um, it's um, very easy to read. Um, but he, uh, Phil, actually um, quotes um, from a... a Another author, Robert Wells, who wrote a book called Is a Blue Whale the Biggest Thing There Is? Have you ever heard of that one? Yeah, so uh, Phil makes... Phil is quoting this other quote. 
The largest living thing on the planet, he argues, is the blue whale, a massive creature that can weigh up to 100 tonnes, 999 and 800 kilos, roughly. However, compared to a mountain, the blue whale is minuscule. Mount Everest could contain literally millions of, of these whales. That would be weird, wouldn't it? The mountain, in turn, is only just visible on satellite images of Earth. Our planet dwarfs not just the mountains, but entire mountain ranges. Yet, the Earth is tiny compared to the Sun, which is 50,000 times larger than this spinning blue ball that we call home. The Sun, however, is a miniature of the largest star that we're actually aware of. 50 million of our suns would fit into that rotating orb called Antares. Antares, though, is just one star amongst billions in this galaxy. And although galaxies are immense, measuring at least 10,000 light years across, they're all lost in space. <laughs> Our universe contains enough galaxies, each one containing billions of suns, for everyone alive on the planet right now to have 10 of them personally. The point is this, God created it all with the words, let there be light. Let there be light. How big is your God? The quote ends. How big is your God? And you know what amazes me about that passage in Genesis, the creation story? And I'll never forget when I see um, kids and teenagers make this realisation for themselves. God created light a couple of days before he created the sun. Mm. Go meditate on that. He is the inexhaustible source of life. In other words, he is energy. He is power. His personality is radiant with infinite light. Unlike my mobile phone, and heaven forbid if I ever have to have one in an electric car, it will never need recharging. God doesn't need recharging. God doesn't come with a... Uh, USB cord. Think about it. If God ever ceased to exist, there would be absolute nothingness. Hmm. In him we live and move and have our being. He cannot faint or grow weary. He is an, ever, uh, he is an unending river of life and the source of our strength every moment of every day both now and forever. I don't know if the team want to come up. We've just got a couple more to go in case your heads aren't full enough yet. <laughs> Another implication of the divine name is that when God says, I am who I am, he summons us to humble conformity. And that's important. Let me, let me tell you why. Because when God says, I am who I am, he puts to bed once and for all the notion that everybody's view of God is as good as everybody else's. And that's a very common philosophy in today's world. God is who he is. And nobody's opinion of him makes any difference. What this means is simply this, is that, is that in our calling as his children... Our goal, our aim is to strive to know him for who he is. That's what God wants. Not for who we want him to be for us. Do you, do you get that? 
He wants us to know him for who he is, not what we want him to be for us. It is we who must conform to God, not he to us. Imagine if parents were to learn manners from their children. And if you've eaten at any of the local food halls lately, lately you'll know that that's an obsolete statement now. But imagine if parents were to learn manners from their children or if the coach was to learn the game from the players or if the apprentice was to tell the boss how to run the business. Or, or as Isaiah put it, does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? It seems laughable, but how many people are there in the world today who are going about their lives with little or no thought, no regard about conforming their lives to the daily will and character of an absolute God? One last implication of this magnificent name, I am who I am, is that this infinite, absolute, self-determining God draws near to us through Jesus. This infinite, absolute, self-determining God draws near to us through Jesus. We come all the way back around to John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say that you've seen Abraham? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. One author makes this comment. Could Jesus have taken any more exalted words upon his lips? When Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, he took up all the majestic truth of the name of God, wrapped it in the humility of servanthood, offered himself to atone for our rebellion and made a way for us to see the glory of God without fear. Because I don't know about you, but when I step back and consider the implications of the name I am who I am, it fills me with fear. That's just an honest response because he's absolute. It's not a game. And yet through Jesus, we can know him with no fear because that's what God does I am present with you because I want to be actually is what he's saying I choose it through Jesus we have this indescribable privilege of knowing Yahweh the great I am as our father This is why the psalm, writer, the psalm writer is able to declare those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Yahweh, have never forsaken those you speak to. Sorry, those who seek you. For those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Yahweh, have never forsaken those who seek you. It's my prayer that over the next several weeks as we journey through the I am statements of Jesus that we would come into a deeper understanding of who he really is and what it means to follow him. Father, we thank you for your word. It's powerful. It humbles us. And if we're honest, sometimes it 
well, it scares us. But this, you're not a God of fear because your word is so clear that you love us and you want relationship with us. You desire relationship with your people. When you call people to yourself, you are the God who saves. We've just been singing that. Um, Hosanna means save us. God saves. Father, open our hearts and our minds. Help us to expand our capacity to even just glimpse who you are so that in, into the weeks leading up to this special time where we celebrate the coming of Messiah, our Saviour, Jesus, we, not just for the sake of knowledge, would get a better understanding of who you are, but that we would really begin to enter into a deeper relationship with you as our Father because of who you are. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all as we endeavour down this amazing journey. You are who you are, and you love us deeply. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.